and welcome to episode 17 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, a look at how journalists and all of us reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. If you're like me and you're like just about everyone with an internet connection, you've probably clicked on an article that is a list, you know, 10 Reasons You'll Marry Your Prom Date, or 36 Things You Never Knew About the Sitcom Boy Meets World. These types of stories are everywhere now, and that's because they get clicks. My guest for this episode is not a writer by trade, but did so last week for the website Medium. He wrote a terrific piece all about why we love lists. The article is called 10 Reasons You Will Read This Medium Post, and of course he did that cleverly in list form. Ryan Schmeiser, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. Uh, Ryan, I asked you on for a couple of reasons. A, you're not a journalist or storyteller by trade, but a venture capitalist in New York, so you're from outside the realm of traditional journalism. B, you decided to get into writing on the Medium platform, and with this piece you wound up with a pretty nice little viral sensation. So I wanted to talk to you about that. And then C... Your article, All About Lists, was so well-crafted that I'm really not at all surprised it's taken off like it has. So very quickly, for those who haven't read it, and of course we'll put a link on the article with this podcast, give me the summary of your piece. Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, the piece looks at the heuristic biases and the way that our neural networks function and why those two things lead us to be inclined to read lists while we find ourselves continuously clicking a list and pursuing them to completion. And as you mentioned, I try to present each of these heuristic biases or neural drivers um, in the form of a list itself. I just thought it was so clever the way you did it. And, and again, it was just so well written. In the article, you talk about how we instinctively appreciate false constraints, we defer to authority naturally, and we act in ways that list writers manipulate. Of the 10 things that you list, what do you think surprises people the most? Sure. So um, I, think there are, I think there are a couple surprising things, actually, that came out of uh, my, my research and things that I think uh, people weren't aware of. Um, one major one is, in fact, the way that our neural networks function when we read through these lists. So one of the areas that I spent some time researching is this idea that the dopamine centers in our brain, which regulates, amongst other things, motivation and reward, when they see lists, they fire up and they push us to want to read those lists because they recall the <laughs> previous time when we read lists to completion and felt a sense of relief, reward, and satisfaction in completing those lists. So that kind of neural driver was a very interesting one. Um, I think some of the other ones that uh, were pretty interesting was the idea of the sunk cost fallacy, this idea that once we start reading through lists, we become progressively more inclined to finish them because we're going through the points, um, and we are averse to loss. We don't want to walk away once we've started to commit, so we often see these lists through to completion. Um, those two are pretty interesting, but um, I think you know a, a bunch of the stuff that uh, came up, I think uh, the readers found uh, a little bit unusual, a little bit interesting. Yeah, and you know what I liked about it from a storytelling perspective is that you basically set up the challenge for yourself. You tell readers exactly what they're going to do, and then you guide them along as they do it. Were you confident that such a plan would work? <laughs> well, I was, I was a little bit nervous, um, and you know, I actually addressed this specifically in one of the points. I think it was point eight, this idea that 
you know, I thought readers would uh, see this title and some of them would actually click on the list because they would want a chance to prove me wrong, to prove that they wouldn't, in fact, uh, read through these 10 reasons. And in fact, you know, that, that motivation is this idea of autonomy over our destinies and this, uh, ex- this experience of satisfaction we get when we feel in control and the ability to feel like we can walk away from the list at any time. So I was aware of that when writing the list. What I tried to do was uh, be succinct, be informative, back it up with a ton of evidence, um, present titles that are a little bit uh, surprising to give a, a sense of cognitive dissonance and keep people uh, intrigued and reading on. Um, but I think that the way I approached it was try to be slightly humorous in, in the title and uh, in the name of each bullet point, but uh, really try to substantiate it with a bunch of research and be respectful to the readers um, as they went through the, uh, the list. Um, I think also I was helped along tremendously by the fact that these list form articles do in fact work. They do incline people to pursue these lists and read them to completion. You talk about how people gravitate towards lists because they're easy. Now it seems like in terms of, you know, quote unquote, traditional media, reputable media, so many blogs, so many reputable media sites find themselves gravitating towards writing and publishing list type articles as opposed to your traditional, uh, you know, traditional stories. As someone who obviously reads a lot and obviously is very analytical about this stuff, do you consider this a positive thing? Sure. So I think that the, the, it falls into a couple broad categories. The first is this idea that people are just trying to get as many eyeballs as possible and often present uh, pretty trivial content in the form of lists and draw people in that way. Um, and I actually mentioned this in one of my points. Lists are so tempting because they present the illusion of a satisfactory, quick fix and comprehensive information in the form of a very digestible list. Um, and I our brains gravitate toward uh, the law of least effort. They want to consume that content in the simplest way possible. So I think that partially um, it's in fact a bad thing. You've seen, you know, anybody that spends time on the internet has seen the massive increase in the amount of list form articles, uh, many of them trivial. But I do think that, you know, sometimes hardcore factual information that is hard to digest is often well served in list form. Our brains prefer processing this information spatially in list form. It makes it easier to digest, easier to remember. Um, so I think that there are you know, there is a place for lists online. I think that unfortunately uh, the the more common form of list article online is uh, the trivial fifty cutest cats, uh, <laughs> twenty ways to lose a hundred pounds overnight. Um, right, right, right. But I do think that there is a, there is room certainly for high quality articles that are themselves lists. And I think too, in this case, your storytelling ability really shines in this particular article, despite the list constraints that you place on yourself. And, you know, I know that's part of the reason I wanted to have you on this podcast was because, yeah, you wrote this list article, but you did it so cleverly, so craftily. So I have to feel like you value storytelling and that even with all these lists that, you know, lure us in with their titles, there has to be a place for storytelling in stories like these. Absolutely. So I would agree with that completely. I think especially and I found, you know, when you're, play, when you're posting at a place like Medium where the audience tends to self-select into those that prefer long-form, um, informative, deep, high-quality content, you really do need to weave a compelling narrative throughout the piece. It needs to be comprehensive. It needs to, be, uh, it needs to deliver value to the reader. There is so much content on Medium that when you want to stand out, you really do have to weave some sort of compelling narrative that tells, as you said, a story. Um, and I think this is actually... Uh, you know, a, a microcosm of the broader the broader landscape of content. Uh, 
such an overabundance of content. People gravitate, as I said, towards stuff that is very digestible, list form articles being one of them, but also things that are high quality, that tell a story, that evoke a certain kind of uh, sentiment or feeling or experience when you're reading them. So with that in mind, I certainly did try and uh, present this in story form, uh, bring it full circle at the end. Uh, hopefully the people that's, that read it walked away with a new outlook on how these list form articles affect them, how they draw them in, and even perhaps you know click through some of the uh, links that I put in there and did a bit more research into cognitive biases and neural networks in their own time. <laughs> that's a lofty goal, and it definitely seems like <laughs> You know, I think part of the reason that we might even click on a list like yours as opposed to other lists is that I think deep down we kind of like these under the hood, behind the scenes kind of looks at things. I know a lot of the articles that I've listed in my three great stories column, which is itself a list, um, <laughs> tend to be, you know, a look behind the a look behind the scenes at Google or at Apple or, or things like that, where you know we've got these parts of our lives, these everyday companies or everyday items that are in our lives and we want to have that unique perspective on them. We want to really get that in-depth look. And certainly the way things have gone in terms of social media, lists and these kind of articles are absolutely parts of our lives. And so this kind of article, you know, I would think too, part of the reason you included so many links is because to emphasize that expertise, to emphasize that this is not just your run-of-the-mill list article, hopefully someone might actually learn something here. Absolutely. And I think when you're making the claims that I was making, it really is critical to substantiate them. You know, I, would, I as a reader would probably feel quite insulted if somebody was just telling me 10 random reasons why I would read a list without substantiating any of, any of it, without providing evidence as to why this works, why this is the way that things are. Um, I think, again, you know, wanted to be respectful of the readers, wanted them to walk away with something that I think was interesting. Um, and as you said, this is kind of a behind the scenes look. You know, many of these things aren't immediately obvious. And the reason that I actually began researching this and doing, doing work in it and writing about this was that over the last year or so, I found myself in my spare time you know, browsing the internet like many do. And when I see a list-based article, I would click it. You know, I, 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 like everybody else, wants to learn the 10 secrets to uh, you know, <laughs> losing 100 pounds or six-pack abs <laughs> overnight. So I was very curious as to why I kept spending more and more of my time you know, automatically drawn to that. And it turns out that there is a strong psychological um, and neural uh, reason why we do, in fact, pursue lists the way that we do. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Ryan Schmeiser, newfound writer and author of the article, 10 Reasons You Will Read This Medium Post. Now, that leads us into our next topic of conversation, which is medium. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was because of that fact, because you found yourself on this new uh, platform for not necessarily journalists, but people with a voice. You're not a writer, but you chose Medium as your way to become one. Take me through that journey. Absolutely. So you know, for those that perhaps aren't familiar with Medium, Medium is a company founded by the former co-founders of Twitter. And what it tends to be focused on is longer form, beautifully presented content. Um, it encourages, I think, you know, people that are interested in longer form things, people that are interested in a variety of topics. And what it tends to do is group this content around collections and then serve those serve its readers collections that they will find interesting. Um, I decided to try writing on Medium for a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, the readers on Medium are a self-selected group that you know, tend to prefer the type of content that I like to write. 
I think the second thing is that I was very curious to see how the pipes behind Medium worked, what kind of network effects there were, how that all came together behind the scenes. So again, for those that don't know, Medium has a very tight integration with Twitter, and that presents a very interesting viral component to how these articles are spread. So I, for example, don't have my own freestanding blog. And I think when I posted this article, I had about 20 followers on Twitter and three tweets from five years ago. <laughs> and I was very curious to see, you know, an author that was starting off on a clean slate, if they wrote in Medium, what kind of network effect could that bring to the table? Could it escalate their efforts to reach some sort of audience? Um, and I was, you know, blown away. My expectations were exceeded. What, what I found happening was that I posted this article and, you know, within 24 hours, it had been added to the editor's picks, which is the uh, collection of content curated by the uh, medium editors themselves. Um, it had been tweeted out by you know, dozens of people, some, some who were you know, people in the publishing and writing space that I had great respect for, some which were entrepreneurs themselves. Um, and somebody who had you know, very little network before, I was able to reach a very broad audience. Um, so I was curious to see how that worked. I walked away being uh, you know, overwhelmed with how positive my experience was. Um, the final thing I'll add is that Medium provides a very bare bones but beautiful tool set for creating and writing content. Um, it's collaborative. It encourages you, know, you to push content. Um, and I really would encourage people to you know, both check out Medium as a writer but even as a consumer of content. Uh, the content tends to be uh, very high quality. And uh, one point that I think you made that I think can be explored a little more too is that even though you are a first-time writer and you had this hit, a lot of it was because, again, you were named an editor's pick. And I'm curious as to how many of the articles on Medium, you know, kind of do fall by the wayside and don't really receive much of an audience. Because at the end of the day, there are so many writers who can post what they want, but you still have to have the goods. You still have to have the content to get it done and get an audience. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very fair point. So the amount of content that they're receiving is probably increasing exponentially as the network becomes more and more popular. Sure, it's becoming a little bit harder to get uh, recognized and stand out, probably a lot harder today than it was six months ago when the platform was still relatively new. Um, what is great about Medium is that there are these collections that are curated by individual editors. Um, and it could really be anybody. You or I could both start a collection around a niche topic. And those collections have people following them. And the followers are automatically presented all content that is added to collections that they follow. So what ends up happening is that there is a ton of collections around highly specific areas. And if you're you know, interested in something pretty niche, there's a high likelihood you'll be able to find a collection that you can submit it to. Um, of course, you know, very, very few articles will probably make it to uh, the editor's picks or to some of the larger collections where the uh, burden of uh, you know, burden of quality is somewhat higher, but I still believe that Medium presents an interesting opportunity for you know, many writers to be able to reach uh, a larger audience, especially if they don't have a built-in audience going into it. So often now, especially online, it seems like people value expertise more than necessarily a traditional journalism background. Rather than, you know, rather than read an article where a journalist interviews someone who's an expert, let's hear from the expert as long as that person can write a cogent article. Do you see that as a bellwether? Is that the way things are going? I think that's a, that's a very interesting point. Um, I had read an article actually recently by Tom Nichols called The Death of Expertise, and he presents an interesting argument that, in fact, the idea of democracy has permeated the way that we perceive people's opinions and the way we perceive content. Um, I think he argues that the layman has this idea that 
you know, all opinions are equal, borrowing from the idea of democracy, when in fact his argument is that people who do have a degree of expertise, their opinion should be taken more seriously because they often know what they're talking about. I think the way, the way that things are going online now, and I addressed this actually in one of the points of my blog post, there is, almost off, there is very often a deference to authority, even if we don't quite know who that authority is. You know, we'll be browsing things like Lifehacker, which is a, a good publication, but we, we often don't know who those writers are. Um, we assume a degree of authority, and so we're you know, somewhat inclined to believe that opinion. We don't know, you know whether or not those people are experts. Um, I think that that trend will continue. I think more and more people have a voice online now. It's becoming a little bit harder to sift through what is kind of high, con- high quality content from experts versus from layman. But I do certainly think that there will always be a place for you know, experts online. Um, and in fact, you know, those experts are able to build up very interesting niche audiences that are highly engaged with the content they produce. So you know, that's my, my long-winded way of saying that I think <laughs> that expertise is somewhat dying. People are you know, consuming content from those that aren't experts, perhaps sometimes taking it more seriously than they should, but that there will probably always exist high demand for expert-based content. And it also seems like curated content is now more than ever becoming important online because there is just so much content out there too. Absolutely. So there's, a, there's this thing called the uh, 1990 rule of the internet. And this idea holds that 1% of the people on the internet are creating the content. They're maintaining their own you know, WordPress blogs um, and the like. Then 9% are playing the role of curating content or retweeting it or assembling it in some form. And then 90% are passive consumers. I think Medium actually incensed the 9% of uh, curators to actually themselves become participants in that 1% of creators. But as you correctly said, I think the role and importance of that 9% that is curating content and delivering high-value content is becoming increasingly important. And in fact, you see technology platforms evolving specifically around the concept of curating content, of sifting through all the noise and presenting people with what they think those people would want to see. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Ryan Schmeiser, author of the article, 10 Reasons You Will Read This Medium Post, a masterful piece about why we love lists. Ryan, typically I like to use the third and final segment of the podcast to kind of talk about advice for young writers and young journalists, but it occurs to me that you are a young journalist (laughs) and not really an experienced writer by any means, yet you obviously have a love for it, uh, and you're quite good at it despite the lack of experience. So I would ask you, you know, how did you develop a passion for writing and what enabled you to become so competent at it with so little experience? Well, first of all, I really appreciate that. So th- thank you for the kind words. Um, I think, you know, before, before I kind of give my background, I think that writing is a critical place in almost every realm of, of commerce, of communication, of relationships. It is, it is a critical skill to hone. So, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, my background's in venture capital, and there is extreme value in able to, being able to present your views succinctly and convincingly with the critical evidence to back them up. Um, it's different to writing long-form uh, pieces for a news publication, but it is a form of writing nonetheless. Um, as for you know, my, my, the way that I've accumulated uh, some competency in writing, I think that it comes from, you know, number one, trying to read as much as I possibly can. Um, I try and read between you know, 50 and 100 books a year, which 
uh, for some readers may seem like a lot for others is probably just a drop in the ocean but that's that's what I try and target and I often try and emulate a, a role model of mine Charlie Munger who has been uh, Warren Buffett's uh, second in command at Berkshire Hathaway for the last couple of decades Charlie presents this idea of the multi-model latticework of thinking the idea of borrowing um, different models from across disciplines and applying them to you know, your writing, to your thinking, to the way you approach situations. So uh, in the article that I uh, wrote on Medium, I try to borrow some ideas from neurology, some ideas from psychology, some ideas from sociology, um, some ideas from economics, and weave them into a more compelling narrative. And I think trying to read up as much as I can on as many topics as I can certainly helps make me, um, you know, it helps me improve my writing and uh, obviously, you know, as I, the more I write, the better, I, the better I'm getting at it. So I continue to, continue to try and hone the craft and certainly plan on participating more in the medium community going forward. Yeah, I, uh, I've always said that writing and public speaking are two of those universal skills. You need them almost in, in just about every job that involves communication to some degree. I'm curious, uh, for you as a venture capitalist, was that part of you drawn to Medium as well? You, you said you kind of wanted to get under the hood of Medium a little bit, and that's why you uh, wrote your article for them. Was that also, you know, seeing uh, a startup, but obviously one that is coming off, you know, as you said, uh, has a real strong connection, started by one of the founders of Twitter. Was uh, that part of you intrigued as well in terms of getting behind the scenes and seeing how that all worked? Absolutely. So the, the guys that started, as you say, are you know, personal role models. They're, they're incredibly successful entrepreneurs. And I was very excited to see you know, what their take on, on uh, publishing would be. So the founder is, is a guy named Evan Williams who came out with Blogger back, uh, I think, probably around 2000, if I'm not mistaken, um, which was a really early look at what blogging one day would be. Um, went on to do Twitter and now this very curious to see how he was going to incorporate tight integration with Twitter and what that meant. So from, from a kind of professional standpoint, was very interested to see how Medium was operating behind the scenes, what the analytics looked like, how that network effect actually ended up playing out. Um, and I wasn't disappointed. I mean, the company I do think is, is pretty amazing. The quality of the content continues to improve. The amount of content they have continues to grow. Um, I think it was, it was a fascinating experience and one that I could you only really get a true appreciation of by actually publishing something on it and seeing how that played out. Ryan, I'm sure uh, folks who have listened to the podcast for this long now probably have been trying to place your accent now for about <laughs> 25 minutes. Um, you're uh, from South Africa, yep. and you, uh, you've been in the States for a few years. And I just kind of wanted to ask you a couple of questions about you know, the differences you see between media in South Africa and media here. So it's so rare that we get to speak to someone on the podcast with that kind of international experience. I'm curious as to what you'd have to say about what you saw growing up in South Africa regarding media and journalism and how that compares to what you see in the States. Absolutely. So uh, I've been removed from it for, for a couple of years. So it's very possible that it's, that it's evolved and changed since I was in close contact. But I think I saw a couple things uh, in, in South Africa that were particularly interesting. Um, the first is that you know, the kind of content and publishing and broadcasting that is available um, if you have access in South Africa is actually of a very high quality, um, you know, very, very world-class, comparable to South Africa. And I think you have uh, an engaged community that is interested in 
you know, the political situation and the economic situation, and you have content being delivered that's of a very, of a very high caliber. I think what's uh, idiosyncratic to South Africa and you know, many developing nations is the problem of access. So you have a population of around 45 million people. You have maybe 5 or 10 million people have constant access. The rest are really grappling with some you know, far more significant problems than being able to access uh, media and news and, and publishing. Um, in, in the United States, you know, it's assumed that the, you know, the vast majority of the population has access uh, to content. And because of that, there has been an evolution of something for everybody. In South Africa, there are fewer options, but there are also fewer people that have access. Um, so I think one of the fundamental problems um, or challenges that, that South Africa grapples with is you know, increasing the, the reach of content, making sure it's getting into people's hands so that the general public is educated, um, making informed decisions, and, you know, particularly around uh, things to do with uh, politics um, and economics. Um, I think you know, it's, it's unfortunate that you know, a vast majority of the population in South Africa probably doesn't have the degree of access to uh, informative content that they would need. And I think uh, one thing that I always notice in America that other countries do not seem to value as much is the concept of the local affiliate or local news. Um, and I especially notice this in TV where, you know, in the U.S. we've got 200 local television markets across the country. And then you go up to Canada and there's very little regionalizing of the news up there. And I would imagine in South Africa that's that's part of what you're talking about is how in the major urban centers probably a lot of that news gets covered. A lot of those people probably are more informed, but in the areas of greater poverty, of less population, probably a lot more difficult. Absolutely agree. I think in South Africa people have access to you know, the, some international news channels like Sky, CNN, et cetera, so they're getting some information from there. But as you correctly said, it's, it's quite difficult to, to report on a bunch, of this, a bunch of things that go on in some of the more rural areas, and those are often the people that themselves don't have access to, uh, to the content or to, to the news. Um, so in South Africa, when I was there, how, how it worked was that there was one, I think, government-owned broadcaster that accounted for a you know, vast majority of the... Uh, news dissemination and consumption, um, and there were some emerging uh, competitors that were trying to carve out some some niche in the market. But you know, there's certainly less diversity than there is in the U.S. But I think part of that is also a much smaller population and you know a, a more limited reach. Bringing it back to the U.S., one final question for you, Ryan. Obviously, uh, we've talked about how you're a venture capitalist and how you're kind of dipping your toe into the waters of writing. What about the what is it about the landscape of media, online, whatever, what about that encourages you as a writer? And do you see a future in it beyond the occasional uh, dabbling into a form like Medium? Sure. So I think, you know, to, to answer both parts of the question, what encourages me about producing content from, from what I saw is the, the response of people. So the engagement that you get and the, you know, the, the ways that you're able to uh, get in contact with people and address people in a way that you perhaps otherwise wouldn't be able to. So, if you look at the if you look at the venture capital landscape as a microcosm, some of the most successful venture capitalists are people that maintain very active blogs where they're publishing their ideas. They establish themselves as thought leaders, and those blogs often act as significant forms of deal flow. Um, entrepreneurs will read their blog, 
think their ideas are great and that they resonate, and they'll reach out to that venture capitalist and want to try and work with them. So I think that you know, if, I, if I continue a career in venture capital going forward, I would love to you know, build up something like that. Um, but I think that regardless of you know, what I do and you know, where I end up and the things that I work on, I think that writing will certainly always have a place for me. I, I you know, enjoy the cathartic release of writing. Hmm. Um, it helps me clarify ideas in my head. Oftentimes I sit and there are a bunch of ideas rolling around. When you actually write, you know, it forces a form of clarity that just sitting and ruminating uh, you know, probably doesn't. So you know, I've spent a lot of time writing. A lot of the stuff has remained unpublished, but with my positive experience with Medium, I may in fact put more, more things I've written up, up online um, and take it a little bit more seriously going forward. Very good. We'd love to see that. Ryan, uh, I always like to end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? <laughs> um, no, I think, I think this was you know, pretty comprehensive. I would encourage people to, to check out Medium. There's something on there for, for everybody. Um, and yeah, really appreciate you having me on the show. My pleasure. Ryan Schmeiser, great stuff. And thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you for having me. All right. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.